Well, there is nothing worse than being trapped in a downward spiral of destructive sin. And I know that is the first line you wanted to hear out of my mouth this morning. Such an encouragement. But that's what I got. There is nothing worse than being trapped in this downward spiral of destructive sin. We've all experienced this before, what I just said. Picture yourself that you're walking through life at a relatively joyful, happy pace. You're surrounded by friends and family, supportive friends and family. You may be working a job or even pursuing a career that you are absolutely uh, have confirmed that God created specifically for you. Your financial situation is fine. You can pay your bills. You can eat. Not a lot of stress there. And like we are today, we're all here soaking up the few last rays of the Michigan summer. And then right in the middle of this perfect season, right in the middle of your joyful pace through life, this somewhat dark, sinful desire gets the attention of your thoughts. It comes out of nowhere and springs up in your mind. The next day comes and this desire pops up again. And then on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, and then Wednesday night and to Thursday. This happens for a few more days, even maybe a few more weeks. And now this sinful desire, this sinful thought has taken captive every word, every moment of your life. Now, right away, you do recognize that the desire is not good. You recognize that, and you know that if you were to act on this desire, it would destroy everything in its path. If you go through with what your mind is telling you, your relationships, your reputation, all of those would be destroyed. Yet, the more you think about this desire and the longer you let it hang around in your heart, it begins to grab more of your attention. It begins to consume you. Now, although you know it's dangerous, you're now to the point where you're daydreaming about acting on this seeming harmless desire. In fact, you've reached a point to where you're actually justifying why it would be okay if you actually did engage it. You begin to tell yourself, this will make me happy. This will make me happier than I am. I believe this is what's been missing in my life. That's what you tell yourself. Or, or some of these things. Maybe just this one time. No one will know. I deserve this. And then what began as a seemingly insignificant and out of character temptation or desire has grabbed the entire attention of your life. It's no longer small. It's full blown into temptation. It's calling you, begging you. It's consuming you. You no longer think about the damage it will inflict on your life. Your only thought is how you will benefit from it, how it will satisfy you. Your heart has grown hard like a callus. The truth of its destruction you don't even understand. The callousness has led you into darkness. Your mind and your heart are darkened to the pure sinfulness of this rebellious act. And your once joyful, vibrant, happy heart is hard. It's full of darkness, which leads to yourself just giving yourself permission to do what is evil, to essentially call what is evil good and what is good evil. You act on this desire because you are convinced it's what you deserve. You are convinced it's what you need. You no longer remember who you are because you're dead to anything that is true. Your heart has become hardened to the devastating effects of your future actions. Your mind is darkened to what is true and what is good. And your soul, which was once filled with the joy of the Lord, is now dead to the things of God. And your life is spiraling out of control down this reckless staircase of sin. Now, if you resonate with this experience... I want you to know a few things. Number one, you are not alone. The person sitting next to you has experienced this as well. Myself included, and I'm the worst. So everyone in this room has experienced what it's like to relive 
those moments. We all live through it. It affects all of us. So the first thing I want you to know is you are not alone. Every person in this church and all over the world struggles with temptation each and every day. Multiple times a day, we struggle with temptation. But number two, there is a better way to live. I want to encourage you by, th- by saying this, that no matter how hard your heart or how reckless your actions or how dark your past, Jesus Christ has been given all power and authority to forgive you, to save you, to cleanse you, and then to set you free from the sin which aims to destroy you. Yes, thank you. Number three, the reason this church exists is to tell as many people as possible that Jesus Christ is our only savior from this sin. Here's the big idea today. Sin destroys, Jesus restores. That's the big idea. That's what I want you to walk away with remembering. Sin destroys, Jesus restores. These eight verses that we just, that Mike just read are directed at a church, a community of Christians who struggled to walk with Jesus just like you and I do today. Every Christian has fought the same battle here on this earth to walk with Jesus and run away from temptation. This church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, which is what the letter is addressed to, they, had, they were told the good news of Jesus Christ. They believed in that good news. They believed and had faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ. They They began to live free from the condemnation of sin. And they were blameless. They were blameless before God. They were cleansed from all that they had done wrong and all the wrong that had been done to them. God removed their sin and gave them the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's this great exchange upon the moment of your faith and trust in Jesus. It's that he takes all of who you are and gives you all of who Jesus is. So we have these new Christians, the church in Ephesus, who are now living, directed by the truth of God and empowered by the spirit of God. Yet they lived in a city, which was, to put it frankly, a very dark and wicked place. You have this little group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. They had experienced the truth of Jesus Christ, but they were surrounded by the sinfulness that they once engaged in, that they once defined their lives, that they could say, that was me. So Paul says, verse 17 through 19, I'll read that again. Now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You're no longer to walk like your neighbors who are not Christians, who the people you used to know who do not believe in Jesus Christ. You're surrounded by Gentiles, people who are not God's people. They don't believe in Christ. I don't want you to walk that way anymore. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here's what one author says about that ancient city in Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading commercial and cultural city in the empire of Rome. It was a large city and a large empire. Its pride was the famous temple of Artemis. We've talked about this in the past when we introduced this letter. You have a thriving city and in the middle of the city is a large idol, statue, false god named Artemis or Diana. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But it was also a leading city of immorality. The temple is at the center. And like most old school ancient temples, the the rituals and the practices were basically an extension of our worst depravities. Our worship was to basically enact on anything that we desire to act on. Not only this, but a 
a quarter mile perimeter around the temple was where um, thieves would hang out and live because you really couldn't be arrested in that zone. Even the, the city's bank would have been inside the temple because nobody wanted to steal from that bank because Artemis would come down and, I don't know, destroy you. So not only do you have this temple of, of idol worship, you have a whole bunch of criminals who live there. And so day after day, the hardness and the darkness of this area begins to grow. A Greek philosopher who wasn't a, the best of moral example himself said that Ephesus, the city, was a dark and vile place. The morals were lower than animals and the inhabitants of Ephesus were only fit to be drowned. That's pretty harsh. Without the truth of Jesus Christ, people, the Gentiles who lived in Ephesus, were darkened in their understanding. They were alienated. They were separated. They were not with God. They were far from him. Their heart is hard. It was hard to the point to become callous. No sensation. You touch a callus and there's nothing there. They're not able to sense or feel the destructive impact of their sin. And the result was they just gave themselves over to any temptation and desire they had. Well, if we were to pick up this church and put it back in that time, if we were to put ourselves in their shoes, we should, we should totally understand this church. This is us. This is who we are. Remember, people throughout all time haven't changed. We've just gotten iPhones. That's the only difference. People are who they have always been. We would, if we would put ourselves in their shoes, we would see how this young, vibrant church was like this small, thriving island in this reckless, giant ocean of wickedness. And we can even understand the Christians at Ephesus that we should realize and empathize that they had once themselves visited the temple. They had engaged in everything that was dark and wicked. No doubt they were reminded about this former life each and every time they would pass the temple to and from work, to and from a friend's house, to and from the market. In fact, we know they were tempted every time they thought of the temple because you and I are tempted every time we think of our former life. Amen? We're tempted. You're not alone. You're not icky or weird if you're tempted by sin. That's not the case. We're all the same. If you're a Christian, you battle with temptation and sin each and every day. So, the first thing we want to understand is we need to be gracious with those who battle with temptation. I mean, just the first thing that pops in my mind when I was reading this is if I remember who I once was and I remember and reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for me, I should, I should be gracious towards people who are stuck in the spiral, destructive sin. I should be gracious with Christians when they fail. Because apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, I am that person. I'm the worst person you've ever met. If you struggle showing grace to people who are not Christians, and we do, let's just, let's just own it, Christians. We get a little self-righteous, you know, every other day. Um, let's just remember that we did not earn our salvation. It's the biggest thing you could probably remember in your life. You didn't earn it. You didn't purchase it. You were not that great that God needed you on his team, okay? He just had to have you. You didn't earn it. It's all by a gift. And we received it by faith, by our belief. And so we must now treat others accordingly, amen? I just hope as a church, we remember that salvation is not a matter of self-improvement. It's not a matter of perfecting our past life or who we once were. Salvation truly is a new and total transformation of the person, and we cannot do that on our own. 
Salvation is a new and total transformation of the person. The Bible routinely speaks of the Christian has been given, not earned, not purchased, given, gifted, a new heart, a new mind, new relationships, new hope, new power, new knowledge, new wisdom, new love, new desires, new, new, new. We can go on for days about the new things that God has given us in Christ. And this is why Paul is writing these encouraging verses. Although they don't seem encouraging to start, I do believe Paul is addressing an issue of the church that they're struggling with, and he's encouraging them. He's encouraging this young church to remember who they are in Christ, and then to remember to put off their old way of life and put on their new way of life. Now, we've already spent three chapters. There's six chapters in this letter. The first three chapters, Paul goes on and on and on about who the Christian is in Christ, how they have been blessed, how their life has been changed. Now, the last three chapters, he's telling them, so now you're free to go and do. Now you're able to change because of what Christ has done. So Paul says, I want you to put off your old self. Don't think like you once did. Don't get trapped in that cycle of sin. I know you see it. I know you're surrounded by it. I know you're tempted by it each and every day. I understand you. I'm there with you. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Because you can. You've been given that power. You've been freed from the sin that desires to destroy you. And so sin destroys and Jesus restores by giving us the ability and the power to put on the new self. And here's the main point. Your new life, this new life that you were told to put on, is powered by the renewed spirit of your mind. That's where you will find it. That's where it will begin. That's where it will start. When you become a Christian, the truth of the gospel, that is the good news that Jesus Christ died and then rose from the dead to save sinners. The truth of the gospel renews your mind, giving you a completely, a completely new capacity and capability. You now have the capacity and capability that even the most educated mind can't understand if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. You love the things of God. You're drawn to the truth of God. You understand his word when you read it. When in the past, you were very dark to it. You were alienated from it. You didn't want anything to do it with it. Paul, the same author of this letter, wrote another letter to a church in Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth. Remember, they got two letters. They were very bad. And here's what he tells them. Now we, referring to the Christians, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that he might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are not spiritual. If you desire to fall down that staircase less than you do today, you will not do that based on some human wisdom that you can find out in the world or on a bookshelf at a bookstore. In fact, your neighbor, if they're not Christian, they could say the sweetest and nicest things to you. It's not going to affect change in your life. It just won't. It will distract you maybe for a moment. You'll be consumed by some new knowledge that you may receive. But I guarantee you, a week later, you're right back in the same spot. Why? Because the spirit is renewed by the mind. We've been given not human wisdom, but God's wisdom. And it's there to renew our mind. That's the only thing that can change our trajectory. And the Christian who's someone who has been saved by grace, right? We didn't earn it. We've covered that. Through faith, a believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And the very moment you believe, God's spirit begins the renewing of your mind. He begins that work. Now, the objection is, well, I don't feel that way. I don't sense it. 
It's not palpable. I can't, can't experience it. And in a day when we are encouraged to think and act and deal according to our feelings, these verses encourage us towards something altogether different than what we're encouraged to do in the world. Meaning that our new life, your new life is free from sin, free from the guilt and shame caused by that sin, free from the bondage and enslavement to your past sin. And all that new life begins when you understand the truth of who Jesus is, what he accomplished and why he accomplished it. That's what Paul is telling us. So many times I I interact with my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're waiting for this, this moment where this light bulb is just going to turn on. And there's hoping Jesus gives it to them. And then that's the moment they've arrived, right? That's the moment you become a real Christian. It's not true. The Christian life is day after day, step after step, learning the things of God, learning the things of Jesus, and your life begins to be transformed. Paul says to this church, don't go back to that life. Don't, Don't go back to that life. And I'm not telling you don't go back to it by finding some other group in Ephesus that can help you. I'm telling you, don't go back to it because the truth about Jesus Christ has been given to you. It's your power. It's your new mind. It's going to replace all the darkness in your life. It's going to begin to transform your life. Verses uh, 21 through 24, let me read those. He says, don't go back to that. Don't do that. It's not who you are. Assuming that you've heard about him and taught in him. Assuming that you've heard about Jesus. Assuming you were taught in Jesus. Listen, some of you have close friendships with people who are not Christians. Some of you are here today and you're not Christians. Um, Our job isn't to be like totally upset with you every time you do something that we don't do. Our job isn't to be totally upset with something that your nature is already telling you to do. You see, Christians get surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians. And it's very strange. We are to be gracious people. See, some of you people are, you're actually damaging your relationships because you're holding it to a standard and they've never heard about him and they were never taught in him. So if you want to start somewhere with someone that you love and you see the pattern of destructive sin in their life, here's the, what you do. You say, hey, I feel you. I know you. I'm right there with you. But Jesus Christ has forgiven me. Let me introduce you to the man who's changed my life. Let me introduce you to the truth. Let me introduce you to the way. Let me introduce you to real life. And that's only found in Jesus Christ. Paul says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him to put off your old self, which belongs to your former life, right? We talked about that, which belongs to your former life and it's corrupt because of those deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Take off those old stinky ratty clothes, put on the new fresh stuff. To state this plainly, you will not walk away from temptation, the temptation that comes this afternoon, you will not be able to walk away from it if you do not commit to learning more about Jesus Christ. If you do not commit to maturing in your walk with him based on what the Bible says about him. Every week will just be another episode of you falling down the spiral staircase of sin. And you're going to fail, right? You're you're not going to be perfect if you all of a sudden commit yourself to learning what the Bible says. You will fail. You will fail. I will fail but those sins are covered and they're paid for. Amen? 
If I were preaching this to the Ephesian Christians, God has not called me to that. I'm just saying. If I were there and he told me to talk to them, I would say, you're never going to be able to walk past that temple. You will never walk past the temple of Artemis without engaging in its wicked, corrupt, and deceitful acts unless you commit to understanding and getting to know very intimately the Jesus who saved you. Something that this church is passionate about. I don't desire to introduce people to a Jesus they will never meet. I want you to be saved by a Jesus whom you actually will meet and get to understand and know what he thinks about all aspects of the world and all areas of your life. Salvation is the spiritual union with Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual union in his death and his resurrection. In that, like Paul says, we put off our old self, right? We crucify it. We kill it. We put it to death. We walk away from it. We make war with it. We hate it. And we put on our new self. We walk in the new resurrected life with a new spirit and a new mind. We, were once, we once were lost, but now we're found. We once were dead, but now we are alive. We once were blind, but now we see. Those are all analogies that the Bible gives for the Christian. The Christian has been given a new identity, which means you are not who you once were. You are an altogether a new creation. You might look the same, and some of you are bummed, but listen, that's okay. You are a new creation. You are one with Jesus Christ, and we ought to develop this desire, ought and, that made me think, ought and we want to develop this desire to know how he lived, to understand how he dealt with temptation, how he treated others, how he responded to conflict. We ought to want to desire those things as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't do what you once did. Don't do once you you know, that which you once did. Take that off. Put on the new, the new you've been given, the new you've been gifted, the new you didn't earn, the new you didn't purchase. Put it on and walk in holiness and godliness. Now, we spent a few minutes talking about what that could mean in our lives, right? Like if you left here today in just a little bit of time, I know some of you are ready to go, just take it easy. I usually say we're beginning to close so you perk up with adrenaline, right? We're beginning to close. Now, Here's some closing application, things that you can do today to practice putting off the old and putting on the new. It's like a manual. Here's the first thing. Number one, remember what God has done for you. If you were to read this Bible, and you should, if, when you read this Bible, (laughs) what you will see is a God who always repeatedly is telling his people, remember, remember, remember. Well, why? Because we so quickly forget how amazing God is and what he has saved us from. We so quickly forget. Remember what God has done for you. Remember that he has transferred you from darkness into his marvelous light. Remember that apart from salvation, which comes by grace, you are the worst person you know. It's not your neighbor. It's not your spouse. It's not your best friend. You are the chief of sinners apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And when you remember that, It'll change the way you think about your God. It'll change the way you pursue him. I know it's hard to remember who we once were. We don't like to go down that dark road. I get it. I totally get it. But when you do remember what God has saved you from, your heart begins to well up with all the emotions of salvation. 
So this week, take time, get alone, pray, just sit silently and pray. Talk with God and thank him for what he has saved you from. And this will transform you also. We talked about this before. This will transform you into, transform you into a gracious person because you will remember how messed up you were, how still kind of messed up you are. And you'll be filled with joy when you realize that although you were that person, Jesus still died for you. The Bible says the son of God did not leave heaven and come to earth when we like came halfway or when we started making better life decisions, God was like, well, now it's time. They're getting better. That's not what the, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that while we were at our worst, still wretched, dark, callous, darkened, evil, wicked people, you're welcome. Jesus came and died for us. That's news that will change your life. The God of all creation pursued you in your worst of worst moments. Friends, when you remember what God has done for you, it's going to transform the way you think about others, the way you deal with others, the way you act with others, the way you act and deal with yourself, with those whom you love and you live with. The world desperately needs to meet Christians who are gracious and humble and remember what God has saved them from. Because no longer do we have to go, stop doing that because I don't like it. When we can say, you should stop doing that because God's got different standards and he will help you. And he loves you enough to help you. Because here's who I once was. Let me introduce you to the man who changed my life. That's how the conversation can go. First thing, remember what God has done. Second, confess your sins. So remember and then confess. Now this is really hard because we're all prideful. So we actually don't do that many things wrong. Well, if you're prideful, that's the root of sin. Gotcha, right? So you got to confess something. You've done some things that are wrong. There's a man named John. He wrote some, some uh, he, he was an author of the New Testament. In his first letter, he says this, if we confess our sins, he, talking about God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we have the power and ability to come before God, the creator of all things, and confess what we have done because he's faithful, which means he will absolutely do it. He's not going to turn a deaf ear. And he's just, which means he's going to do the right thing. And because Jesus Christ did pay for your sin, he will forgive you. Like when you come before God and you confess sin, you don't have to confess and wonder, I wonder if he heard me. Or I wonder if he's actually going to forgive me. Because he will. Because he's faithful and he is just. And let me tell you, there is no one like him. There is no one like our God. Amen? This is the good news we will never hear anywhere else in the world. And then verse 10 says, let me add this warning in here. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Christian, that's how you know you're not perfect. Because if you're not ever going to confess sin to God, you're making God a liar. Because he says, you're sinful and that's why I came. And if you're not going to confess sin to me, you're acting as though you're not a sinner and I am not a liar. One of us is wrong. I think I'm right. I spoke the son into existence, right? He wins that argument. Now I am fully aware of the shame and the guilt that accompanies sin that can come with confession. Confession is hard because we don't actually want to admit. We'd rather justify how right we were than admit how wrong we are. I get that. 
But he is faithful and he is just and he hears you. Now here's the next step of confession. There's a man named James. He wrote a letter. A lot of stuff written in the Bible. And he says, confess your sins to one another. That's, I think, where the beauty comes in the local church. That's when we're actually doing what God desires for his people to do, is when you can look at a trusted individual across from you and say, I failed again. I'm struggling. I need to confess this to you as well because I need your support. I need your help. There's a true blessing in that. Some of you are very apprehensive to talk to anybody about anything about your walk with Jesus Christ, and I understand that. But let me encourage you to just pull off the Band-Aid, whatever you got to do, find someone you trust and confess to them. Because your life will begin to transform if you continually do that. Last one, number three. Confess, so we pray, we confess, and then we abide. We, we stick with, we stay in, we stay close to Jesus. We abide in Jesus. We're in him. Start every day learning about Jesus and end every night praising him for what he has done. There's one thing that I... I would say that I have experienced in my walk with Christ, my walk with Jesus as a Christian, is that the darkness of my temptation and my desires really don't find any room in a mind that's consumed with the things of God. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. That doesn't mean there's, you know, like the first, uh, the first little analogy I gave. That means, that doesn't mean the temptation never pops into my head. They're coming at me all the time. But I can tell you, effective battle against sin is having a mind filled with the truth of God. Filled with the truth of God. Darkness of sin has no room to flourish in your mind if it is filled with the truth of God. That's why Paul says, be renewed by the spirit of what? Your mind. Starts in your mind. I'm going to end with these two verses. These are the words of Jesus here, and I want you to hear them. I want you to reflect on them and think about them. What's the first thing we do? Oh, we pray, we confess. And we abide. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. If you live in Ephesus and you're involved in temple worship, you no longer have to walk in that darkness. I am the light of the world. I have come. If you're part of Citygate Church, if you're here for the first time, if you've been coming here for a long time, and you have not responded to the gospel by giving your life to Christ and becoming a Christian, I am the light of the world, not me. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will no longer walk in darkness. They will walk in light. Then he says this, if you abide, if you abide in my word, if you give your all to it, if you are consumed by it, you are truly my disciples, my followers. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of the Bible sets you free to live your new life in Christ. You put off the old and you put on the new. Sin destroys, Jesus restores. Therefore, we have been given the power and authority to put off the old us and put on the new. Amen? I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion together.